Death is a man in black, and he has gone insane, slaughtering the innocent. Only X, an amnesiac who wakes up to find his wife dead beside him, can stop him. Now, X, along with a band of heroes hunting the man in black, have to embark on a terrifying journey through the cursed town of Crofton, and into a haunted house filled with secrets, to find the only thing that can stop death. From, A, Kale, the number one best-selling author of Bad Dreams. Coffin X, a terrifying novel of dark fantasy and horror. Now available, on Amazon. You are listening to the Dark Fantastic Podcast. Welcome to this new episode of the Dark Fantastic Podcast. I'm your host, AK, and this is a very special episode dedicated to Hugh Walpole, one of my favorite writers. If you're a fan of Victorian literature, Gothic horror, or just great books, then stay tuned. You're gonna love this episode. My guest today is a UK-based reader, collector, and independent researcher of the works ephemera and memorabilia relating to the early 20th century writer Hugh Walpole. He runs the Walpole Chronicles website, which he started in 2011 and which has become the most comprehensive resource on the web detailing the life and works of this prolific author who wrote everything from sentimental melodramas to gothic horror to anti-war novels to children's books. He joins me on the show to talk about Walpole's fascinating life and why readers of all genres need to discover his writing. Please welcome Simon Dunant. I'm a huge fan of uh, of Hugh Walpole, and uh, I discovered his books, I guess, a couple of years ago, and um, it took me a while to warm up to his style, because I think the first book I read of his was The Wooden Horse, and uh, I, I, re- I didn't really like that book, and I still don't really like it, because it's too, it's too emotional for me. Uh, yeah, it's too sentimental, I think. But uh, <laughs> I, I stuck with, with his work and, and moved on to uh, uh, his his next book, uh, The Gods and, and Mr. Mr. Perrin. Oh, yes. Uh, uh, that book just blew me away. I'd never read anything like it. And, uh, and I'm a huge, you know, reader <laughs> of, of Victorian fiction and uh, fiction from the uh, from the 19th century and the early 20th. So uh, I knew my way around a bit, but I've I had never come across something like that. And um, and then I moved on to I think Fortitude, and Fortitude was just uh, it, to me it's it's one of the best books I've ever read, even if it has problems a little bit with with style and uh, which which is a criticism that's that's always you know said about about Walpole. Yeah. But that that book is just it's it's such a moving, inspirational, you know, epic kind of, of emotional journey. Uh, and I and I wrote about it several times on my website, and I did an episode about it actually on my podcast because, in my opinion, he uh, 
he, he pays tribute to Dickens a little bit and Henry James a little bit, but I think he outdoes Dickens <laughs> in that he, he achieves the, the same things that Dickens always tries to achieve in his, you know, loud, sentimental way. I mean Dickens, but uh, Walpole achieve the, achieves it in, I think, in, in a simpler way and in a less sentimental way, although Walpole was very sentimental, but... But just fortitude to me was what Dickens did, what Dickens never really achieved in that, you know, he, he said what he wanted to say without too much sentiment. But anyway, I don't want to keep, keep <laughs> talking. I want, I, this is, this is, uh, I'm just so glad you're here. Excuse me if I've just, you know, run on because. Uh, no, that's great. <laughs> I've been trying to find someone who's interested <laughs> in the work of uh, Walpole because uh, I've talked to a lot of critics and I've actually contacted a lot of people from several universities, but they are, they're just not interested in his work that much. So your, your website, which is an amazing website, not just because of as, as an archive of, of his work, but just the website is just amazing. I, at first, I thought it was actually an official website, you know, <laughs> uh, launched by, uh, you know, someone from, from, his, from his family. Yeah, uh, because it's such a great archive. So I wanted to ask you how you came upon his work and uh, and what interested you so much in his work. Yeah, well, it's interesting. Um, it's interesting, really, because uh, you say, "How did I find his work?" I sometimes wonder whether his whether his work found me. I'm sure a lot of people who um, come across authors that really kind of um, set off some kind of spark or pique their interest, think that, you know, how did this work find me? Um, but I, I, I picked up uh, a book in a local charity shop. Um, I've always been interested, obviously, uh, an avid reader, um, but I'd never heard of Hugh Walpole before. And this was in about 2011. I picked up Fortitude, uh, which was the first book I picked up. And I opened I always open up the book when I uh, see a new uh, new book that might be interesting, pick it up and open the first page and see what the first line is. And the first line of Fortitude says, uh, it isn't life that matters, it is the courage you bring to it. And that just first line just blew me away because it was like a very philosophical line um, about how to live your life. Um, uh, and so I, I just had to buy the book. So obviously Fortitude... Um, it, as you mentioned, uh, it, it's um, a real kind of, uh, it, it's a real tale of hardy life down in Cornwall, which is where uh, Hugh Walpole uh, spent some of his early life. Um, and uh, I, I, I loved his work and just had to find out more. Um, but, but I also was interested in like, how could somebody write such an opening line, a philosophical line? There must be more to this person who wrote this. So um, I started finding more and more of, it, more of his books um, in charity shops, on eBay, online. And before I knew it, <laughs> he ended up with a huge library of pretty much every book that he ever wrote. Um, and he was a prolific writer, um, which also fascinated me is how can somebody be so prolific at what they do? So I started getting really interested in the person behind the writing, um, which kind of led me to start up a blog um, to kind of express that journey online of, of what I'd found, 
because it was more than just stories. It was there's something else here. Um, and as, as you say, I, I hadn't heard of you, Walpole. Um, when I started asking other people online and friends, they were like, no, we've never heard of him either. And I'm like, wow, this is incredible. So, um, yeah, the more I dug into it, um, the more I was fascinated. And I think it, it took me on the journey, not o only of his works and the actual stories contained within them, but all that, also the story of the person behind them, which was an absolutely fascinating um, fascinating journey as well in his personal life. So um, that kind of took over and it became a fascination for me. And it's interesting, you, you mentioned earlier about the fact that, uh, you know, he, he had, uh, he, he kind of, his stories were very, you know, much in the, the realm sometimes of Dickings and The Wooden Horse, which was his first book, was his first attempt at writing a novel um, that got accepted by a publisher. And uh, it was very sentimental. I think he was trying to write for that particular market because he didn't have a direction early on. Um, but he has a number of facets, including kind of gothic bordering on horror, I suppose. The uh, gods uh, and Mr. Perrin, or Mr. Perrin and Mr. Trail, as it's known here, kind of in Europe and the UK. Um, I have seen the film, in fact, of that, and it's actually one of my favourite books. Um, and the film is amazing. If you can track it down, it's black and white. I think it was made in 1948 sometime. But the film is it does justice to the book, um, and there's also a, a famous, more slightly more famous book of his called Man with Red Hair, which again is a kind of macabre tale as well. Um, but he could do like a ton of genres, right? He could do the sentimental stuff, uh, which kind of in the earlier 20th, 20th century fed um, the growing readership of kind of housewives who wanted the Mills and Boone style romanticism. He could do that really well, but he could also do the uh, uh, the, the gothic horror uh, as well. And then, obviously, on in his later life, he did um, when he moved to the lakes. He he um, he did the tale, the historical novels inspired by kind of Walter Scott's work, um, and the probably most famous works that he did, which was Rogue Harry's, based in his beloved uh, Lake District uh, in in northern England, but. Uh, I could never have foreseen the journey when I picked up that first book, but I think it's coming back to that initial question. It was like, it was those words that spoke to me. It was like, this person is more than a writer. He has something else about him that, that kind of could move you just from those few words on the page. So that was kind of my introduction to Hugh Walpole. And as I say, I think him and his work found me rather than the other way around. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, you you write you write about that a little bit on your website. Yeah, but it doesn't really uh, what you what you wrote uh, on the website doesn't really explain the depth of your work about him because the website is isn't just like uh, an intro because going in when I, before I really delved into it. I thought it would be just an introduction to to uh, Walpole's uh, work to introduce him because he's he's near he's a near forgotten writer. It's actually an archive. You have you have articles written about him. You have uh, articles written by him. You include all the audiobooks that are uh, available, the free audiobooks available uh, of his work, mainly from LibriVox, which are free books. 
available to everyone. And, and so it's also a wonderful website. And this is actually how I discovered uh, Walpole's work through LibriVox. But that's another yeah. story. Uh, so I just, I, I, I just really want to understand, because your passion for his work is so apparent, uh, and that's the only thing that explains uh, how wonderful the, your website is. So, <laughs> again, I, I, wa I want to know uh, what really motivated you, other than your, your love of his work, to actually yeah. build this kind of digital museum uh, yeah. dedicated to him. Yeah, and it is a digital museum. That's exactly it. I'm glad it comes across that way because... Um, I've always been fascinated on in the, how people get their inspiration to do what they do. Um, so like, I'm a big fan of like, you know, the personal development arena and kind of um, bettering yourself and trying to do the best you can to try and do the best for others. And I think what a lot of people don't know about Hugo Pohl, even if they know his work, is that, you know, behind the person who wrote um all those stories um a lot of people see him in his later life he became a sir for his work in russia he went out to russia in on the front in the first world war um and he got a he got a knighthood for that and he became so he Walpole. but he came from the wrong side of the family right so he was descended from the first prime minister robert walpole a uh, first prime minister of the uk robert walpole um and the family branch divides off uh, and on one side, you've got Horace Walpole, who kind of inherited all the titles that went with it and um, also frittered away pretty much most of the inheritance that came from uh, uh, the original Robert Walpole, as say, the first prime minister of the UK. And then you've got kind of another branch, which is where Hugh Walpole is. And, and he kind of came from a very humble background. You know, he might have ended up a sir and died a sir. And, and certainly he amassed a large fortune throughout his prolific career but he was a self-made writer and I think that's one of the things also that fascinated me about his life was that this was a self-made person who you know his father was uh, in the clergy um, he wanted his son Hugh to go into the clergy as well um, but Hugh Walpole was always fascinated in telling stories right from an early age and he was determined to be a writer uh, by hook or by crook. He couldn't spell very well. Um, I mean, his educational days were marred by things like bullying. He went to a school called Marlowe, got terribly bullied at Marlowe School. Um, and all, all of this kind of like stunted his education. Um, and here was a person who wasn't, you know, he, he wasn't really kind of like formally educated very well and didn't do well at school because of the bullying and, and moving around. His, his father and mother were in the church, so they moved around a lot. Um, they were in New Zealand, New York, and they moved back to Cornwall, then to Durham. You know, his childhood was a kind of a bit of a crazy nomad life, lifestyle. <clears throat> so he didn't get a, a very good schooling, yet he went on to, to do such prolific work and tell such great stories. Um, and I think... What fascinates me is that actually people might see him as having a, a challenging childhood, but it kind of that's what influenced and made him the storyteller that he was. And this kind of thing really fascinates me because he he gives an insight through his work 
if you read his books at face value, you get a lot of entertainment about it. But there's a lot of biographical stuff that's in those um, in those books uh, that he he draws upon. And had he never had that life, he wouldn't have been able to draw upon that. Um, and myself, I've kind of had a bit of my nomadic life. Um, I I also kind of like moved around a lot uh, during my childhood and uh, early days, and certainly through my teens. Um, and I'm thinking, well, this guy did so much stuff, but still became a successful person. So I think there is that element uh, side of it as well. Is it's a case study on if you wanted to be a writer, and I'm sure a lot of people who uh, are listening to this podcast who follow the literary scene um, might well have had have aspirations to be a writer as well. Um, take some inspiration from the fact that you know somebody like Hugh Walpole. Uh, can be a writer with terrible spelling. His editors, his publishers, used to kind of uh, always derise him for his bad spelling. But I mean, that was their job. They were the editors. Um, and he wrote all his manuscripts in, in pen. You know, he didn't type them up. Somebody else typed them up for him. Um, so I think it's fascinating that he overcome all the odds to become as successful as he did and amass the wealth and the lifestyle that he did from actually very humble beginnings. So I think there's a rags to riches story there as well that people don't see because they only see the latter part of his life as Sir Hugh Walpole. So there's some elements there that I wanted to bring out in the website to kind of take people on that journey uh, that I was so fascinated with. So, I mean, I hope that goes some way to explain my kind of very deep fascination with his life. Uh, yeah, of course it does. And um... I understand. Uh, to, I understand why someone would would fall in love with his work and um, with any author. I, I've I've seen several websites dedicated to to authors before. They are usually fan pages, you know, because yeah. Usually, when you find a website like yours, a website of that quality, a website that works on that level. Usually it's like a fan page dedicated to someone who's already renowned, who's already acknowledged by the public. So That's what true. was fascinating to me about your website, youallpole.com, is that you put so much work into it and, and, and to basically you, you dedicate a lot of your time to a writer who a lot of people might say doesn't deserve it. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not yeah. one of those people. I, I, I'm, not, no, of I'm not saying that. I love his work. I think he's one of the most underrated writers of all time, uh, specifically from from that era. Yeah, and he was praised by Henry James, so that that says something. Because Henry James is, is is basically my all time favorite writer, and of course <laughs> he was nominated for a, a Nobel Prize. So <laughs> Henry James knows what what he's talking about. Yeah, well, he so, mentored him. He did mentor him for a while. I mean, unfortunately, uh, obviously Henry James died. I think at the end of uh, end of the First World War, around 1917. Hugh Wolpe was actually in Russia at the time, um, and his publisher, uh, Henry James' publisher, Martin Secker, actually sent out some books um, to Russia um, for Hugh Wolpe to read. And, and Hugh Wolpe, before he went out to Russia in the, before the First World War, he spent a lot of time with Henry James. So. Those two were quite close. I actually have a few, the actual books that he was sent to Russia throughout my collection. I managed to get hold of um, 
the actual books that he was reading in Russia that were sent to him from Henry James, which is some of my prized possessions. But um, yeah, you're right. I mean, what I would say on that is that I think there are pockets on the internet where if you have a passion for something, you can write just for that audience. Um, and yeah, I think I, when I visit the Lake District, for example, Beatrix Potter is obviously one of the uh, biggest um, well-known um, uh, authors from the Lake District. And when I go there, you know, Hugh Walpole doesn't get any mentions despite actually putting the Lake District on the map. But I think that period of time, it's interesting, that period of time where Hugh Walpole lived from 1884 to 1941, you have a lot of change happening. And um, But there was two world wars in, in the time that he lived. Uh, he'd never saw out the end of the Second World War. But if you think about it, being born in 1884, he had Victoria, who um, uh, obviously died in 1901, and then there was a, a two, two kings that he saw on the throne. Um, and it was an interesting period. And I think uh, he fitted that period. And then obviously after the war, everybody wanted to move on from kind of the work that the earliest, early 20th century uh, had brought uh, for, for the very reasons that people read the types of books uh, that either they want to be transported away from challenging times, which, you know, the earliest, early 20th century had two world wars. It couldn't be more challenging. Um, and he, he was instrumental in trying to get more people uh, reading books as well through his formation of the Book Society. But I, I think after the war, he faded away and nobody wanted those kind of sentimental books anymore. They certainly didn't want to kind of hark back to historical fiction. Um, and a lot of Victorian writers fell out of favour. And I think it's only recently that people have started discovering them. And, yeah, I think Hugh Walpole is a, is a forgotten author. Um, and I suppose because of my love for the work that he does, uh, or he did, um, I think I, I wanted to bring that back. And it was kind of my mission with the website to, to kind of reignite that. And um, certainly in some, some of the more areas where he is a little bit more commercial in things like the macabre, um, he, that is, is kind of gaining a, a bigger following now. So people are slightly rediscovering that. Some of his works will never be rediscovered. I think some of his early works, like you said earlier, The Wooden Horse, the more romantic stuff, probably has fell out of fashion for good. But I certainly feel that there's a lot of his work that could still speak to a lot of the genres now. Um, and certainly his 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 Lakeland novels um, are absolutely right for kind of promoting Lakeland again, uh, the Lake District. It's a very kind of touristy area, and there's a lot of potential for for reawakening his work there. Um, but I think it was he was of his time, and I think it depends on when certain situations come back round again that maybe sometimes you rediscover those authors. Uh, if you look at history, there are cycles. So I think maybe it's coming around and fitting into in, into some of the world uh, the world scene cycles again. Um, but yeah, I'm definitely def definitely trying to champion him because I think he's majorly overlooked, as you say. <laughs> uh, yeah, Godspeed. It's all I can say <laughs> because uh, he deserves it on many levels. Although I do understand to some extent uh, 
you know, comparing him to, uh, I, I don't, I don't want to compare him, but I do understand a little bit some of the criticism, you know, uh, aimed at his work by critics of his time and by contemporary critics, at least the, the very few who, who write about him every now and then, yeah. because uh, he was always criticized uh, basically because he was so prolific. Uh, and he, I think, admitted it, that he, a lot of the time he wrote, he wrote books uh, too quickly, maybe. He said he dashed them off, you know, sometimes, sometimes they, were, they were published, the first drafts basically were published. Uh, maybe that applied more to the, uh, to the Gothic stuff and maybe the ghost stories, I, I'm not really sure. But you sense that sometimes when you read uh, some of his work, especially, as you said, maybe his earlier work, that there is sometimes an inconsistency of style and uh, a lack of attention a little bit to, to again, uh, style or, or, uh, or a love of the language, although he was an amazing stylist when he wanted to be. Uh, but maybe that's that's part of it, uh, which which is the case, by the way, in my humble opinion, with all prolific authors. If you, if you, with the exception maybe of Henry James, Henry James is the only prolific author I ever came across, whose who, whose work never really fell under a certain standard, arguably, yeah. of course. But uh, maybe that's that's part of it, and I I think. Uh, Part of it also might be that he was he had such a, a wide range of interests because how many writers can you actually you know name who wrote so well uh, you know across so many genres look yeah. look at a, at a book like uh, Mr. Pennon and Mr. Trail and then look at a book like fortitude and then look at a book like the old ladies which is a kind of a gothic horror yeah uh, sadistic story and then my all-time favorite of of his novels uh, a prelude to adventure which yeah. is uh, that book you, you can't categorize that book how can you categorize <laughs> a book like a prelude to adventure and researching that book for example uh, and i wrote about that book on my website in in uh, you know i wrote an article about it and when 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 i researched um, the writing of that book i discovered that actually uh, carl jung was a big fan of Hugh walpole and and a big fan mm. of a prelude to adventure and many of his books because he thought that uh, walpole used the uh, maybe the 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 exoskeleton of of you know exciting sensational storytelling to tell stories that are almost mystical in nature <laughs> uh, and yeah. uh, you can look at it one way as mystical and carl jung looked at it as de delving into his his brand of of uh, of existential psychology for example so and there are there are the ghost stories, the short stories, of course. Uh, so Walpole, you know, uh, flaws aside in, in style, maybe. But how many authors can 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 one name, especially from that era, who covered all these genres? And yeah, uh, maybe that's part of the reason why he's not he doesn't have a following because if if you pay attention to to the world of literature in general, especially with modern audiences, 
they don't really like someone who, who writes cross genre. Uh, that's true. The, yeah. So maybe that's part of the reason. I, I just want to get your your opinion on these thoughts. Yeah. No, it's interesting you touched on the psychological side because, um, firstly, when you say he was prolific, I can tell you, like from everything that I've read about him and his biographies and his articles, the man was always writing. Literally, he was writing every minute of the day. If he was if he was awake, he was writing. He was writing in the car when he had you know, had these journeys from Lakeland to London and back. Um, he was he, he wrote numerous introductions to other people's books. Um, he wrote articles galore for magazines, um, and he also, I think, because of the life of as I mentioned earlier, he's he's kind of he, he was always trying to put some perspective on his life as, as like why his life was like the way it was and I think psychology and certainly kind of a bit of the supernatural um, was definitely his uh, way of expressing all the questions he had in his head about why his life would shape the way it was and I think it comes back to that first quote I mentioned earlier it isn't life that matters it is the courage to bring to it I think he went through his life all the time quite fearful um and that fear kind of grew over time and he wanted to put some perspective on it there's you know some of the um books he wrote or contributed articles to about the supernatural about religion he talks about his religion in in some of his more autobiographical works um and basically he seems to kind of have that aspect where he wants to understand the other side and actually it's an aspect of perhaps his early life, which was very unhappy and, you know, the bullying, um, he doesn't mention anywhere that, you know, that, that, that he ever contemplated something like, you know, suicide or anything. But <clears throat> these things <clears throat> have a big effect on somebody's psychology. And if you're going through life scared all the time, you tend to have that, um, that energy about you um, that kind of drives you on. And I think Hugh Walpole used that energy um, to, to be prolific. Uh, and as I say, from the age of kind of about nine, when he went on his, um, these uh, holidays to the northwest of England, he was writing from that age and he didn't stop until he died in 1941 when he had kind of, you know, more tales to tell in his massive, uh, massive uh, progressive anthologies of, of the Lake District. So, um, I certainly think there was a lot of psychology that drove him and he, his need to understand the human condition. Um, and he wrote about people. He was fascinated by people. When he was in London, he would study people. When he was um, in uh, the lakes, he would talk, write and study about, you know, study and write about all the local locals there. <clears throat> he even had a book of dialect from the northwest of England, which in fact, he kind of, ditched really and throughout because he he started writing uh the dialogue uh in rote really um rather than how it was spoken but i just genuinely think he was fascinated in understanding who he was there was a lot about him that he didn't understand and i think that that psychological part was his need for answers and he expressed that through his writing really so that's certainly i think where the psychological part comes through uh, and that's explored in, as you say, books like uh, uh, Mr. Perrin and Mr. Trail was obviously written about his time at Epsom College. 
and he was like found himself doing a teaching job and there's always these kind of strict schoolmasters telling him what to do he was like I need to understand why this is happening and um so yeah it, it definitely the psychological part comes out in his writing do you think that because let me backtrack because <laughs> in in his uh, in his books like Mr. Perrin and Mr. Trail which I think he he mentioned that he thought it was the truest book he ever wrote if, if I'm not uh, if I'm not mistaken maybe I'm paraphrasing a little bit but it was one of his favorites and um, the green mirror also I think was one of his favorites yeah. and in these books you 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 sense um or you feel this sense of sadness and not confusion you know there is the sadness maybe a touch of self-loathing a little bit maybe yeah. a touch of anger towards i i think victorian society on, on on some level because the green mirror is basically you know his 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 tirade against against victorian society or at least the tail end of victorian society absolutely but uh do you think that uh, th- that has to do with uh, he because you mentioned that he had some personal uh this sense of maybe alienation that he mm-hmm. had and he wanted to understand the human condition Do you think that has to do with uh, maybe child abuse? Because he wrote about child abuse so much in his books. Yeah. And he wrote about it so horrifically, especially in yeah. Fortitude. Uh, so do you think he was, abu- he was abused as a child uh, and that has had to do with, 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 with that sense of sadness and s- slight self-loathing? uh that the trend through some of his books oh no absolutely i mean his time at marlow school uh in his former years uh, when he was around i think it was nine to eleven he he had some absolute horrific bullying that happened to him um and and that really scarred him a lot um and obviously you know later later on in life he he was a, a practicing homosexual as well which at the time was illegal Um, and in those times, he had to obviously also kind of be clandestine about his sexuality as well. So there's those aspects to it. Uh, obviously, Victorian society uh, was, was where he grew up. And certainly those, those kind, the kind of morals that you had in, in, in Victorian society would have expected him to you know, go into the church, um, have a, a normal life, you know, which he tried to do just didn't work and I think all through his writing he was trying to explore perhaps in other characters how he could live out the life he really wanted to live uh, but never could um, in, in, in the eyes of his parents he you know he went against his parents to be a to be a writer um, and he succeeded and managed to you know eventually find a fulfilling relationship with Uh, Cheevers, his driver, um, when, he, when he, he met him, who was a former policeman, and he, he managed to have the life that he always wanted and found his ideal life partner. But of course, society would never accept any of that. So the only way he could probably express it was through, um, through his books and through his writing. So I think a lot of his personal uh, angst 
uh, and personal challenges came out through the characters in his books. Um, but anybody reading those today, knowing that context, would actually kind of understand that now they feel, you know, obviously in today's society, things are very different. People can express themselves um, uh, and, and uh, the way they want to. And I think, you know, back then it was challenging and perhaps there are some areas where it can be kind of liberating to, to read that kind of stuff if you understand the backstory to it. And I think that's also something I, you know, really want to explore is, is how to, how, how to interpret Hugh Walpole in what he was trying to come across at the time. Because obviously nobody could ever talk about it. Even in um, Rupert Hart Davis's biography, which was published in 1951, he still had to allude that he was a bachelor uh, because it was still illegal then to be a practicing homosexual. So, you know, long after his death, he, people couldn't still talk about it. Um, but as I say, he still managed to have that side of his life, which was kept private. But of course, he never could really celebrate it with anyone. So definitely, I think there's that tinge of sadness, um, that tinge of oppression. Um, and I think a lot of that does definitely come out in his work, as you say. Yeah, because uh, I learned later on that uh, that he was a gay man and that uh, that he, he never really he, he never really touched upon sexuality that much in his work he he he, he touched upon uh, maybe relationships uh, a bit more he touched upon sexuality a little bit and about abuse mm. a little bit especially in fortitude uh, but but that's what fascinates me about Walpole is it's he's such i haven't read the biography because i, I uh, by rupert davis because i uh, I, I haven't managed to find a copy yet yeah. But even through just reading his work and, and some articles about him, you could sense this conflict within him that, that, that comes across through his work. And that conflict, part of it, of course, is his, uh, you know, having to hide his, 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 the nature of his sexuality. And also, uh, again, what fascinates me about his work is there is this tension uh, within him regarding you know his 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 need to understand also like the mystical aspect of life again as you said understanding the 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 the, the human condition and which is which is very strange that you find a writer coming from that era and from that from that background who who who, who, see, who sees the world as as somewhat unjust place specifically towards someone like him who didn't really have an easy childhood and uh, and again as you said had to hide some aspects of his life because that was the, the the kind of society he lived in at the time he couldn't express himself fully on all levels but you have that side of him and you also have the side of him that's an, always in search of beauty because yeah. a lot of his novels had this or have this, you know, striving for 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 this, uh, you know. I don't want to say higher power because I don't want to get into this kind of religious dogma. Because no, of I think he was, yeah. he was aiming for something uh, more than that. But there is there is this spiritual, mystical, you know, uh, aesthetic to his work which appeals to me so much and fascinates me so much 
because uh, you know side by side with the ugliness uh, or the ugly aspects of Mr. Perrin and Mr. Trail, for example, and the 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 the, the human evil in in a, in a book like Fortitude, and the psychological complexity and the, the the innate guilt of a book like a Prelude to Adventure, but side by side with that, and it's very pronounced in books like Fortitude and a Prelude to Adventure, you find him in search of beauty, in search of a higher power, in search of something bigger than him. In a way, he writes about it in a way that is so moving, that is so honest, uh, that is bigger than religion, that is that in, in a way that I actually honestly, and as I consider myself a wide reader, I'd never come across it before. Yeah, so, no, I agree. Uh, I agree. Then that part does fascinate me too. Um, because, you know, I, I, I've never been a follower of, of kind of, um, you know, orthodox religion of any sort, really. Um, and um, what fascinates me is, is 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 spirituality um and i think there are, as you say there is a lot of that in hugh walpole um and you know the spirituality transcends race creed color and everything about the human condition right and i, I read a lot of uh non-fiction uh on that side as well so certainly there there is a a lot of the elements of hugh walpole that you just mentioned that inspire me too but i think a lot of that comes out of the challenges you you might face in life like Hugh Walpole faced throughout his life in that quest for answers and the need for taking himself to a happy place somewhere to kind of de-stress from those thoughts that might go around in his head all of the time um, I mean certainly uh, mentally I think he had a lot of interest in that and obviously at the end of the Victorian era and the early 20th century there was a lot of kind of interest in the age of enlightenment and you know uh the kind of new age era as they call it where people used to kind of be fascinated by that in the earlier 20th century you know uh arthur conan doyle used to um go and hold uh, seances at his um uh his residences and stuff like that so certainly in literary circles i think there was more of an awareness and that was kind of a bit clandestine and not talked about too much in wider circles as well but I think it fascinated him um, about that juxtaposition of how you can have so much hurt in the world, yet there is also so much beauty. And I think that was a theme through his life. And certainly, you know, he had that juxtaposition as well, living in London, in the, in the thick of London. Um, he used to live opposite uh, Green Park, opposite Buckingham Palace, and used to um, go around... Uh, London in the literary world, which at the time was foggy, you know, dark and really not a very nice place to be in London in the early, uh, early 1900s. Um, and then later on in life, he found out, found his piece of beauty in, in his home in uh, the lakes, which could be, couldn't be more different. So, you know, it's wide open spaces, beautiful countryside, fresh air. Um, and uh, I think that sums it up really he had this duality which kind of runs through us all as people and humans uh and he was fascinated with that side and that definitely comes through in his work and pretty much ran through a theme in, in, in somewhere in all of his work somehow yeah for sure yeah i think the the word i was searching for is that there's something transcendental 
about his work, exactly. some of his work, yeah, that's so ahead of, of, of its time. Because now it's a cliche, you know, talking about uh, meditation and, you know, and turning yeah. into this kind of, uh, of like this kind of a uh, McDonald's kind of brand of, of spirituality, you know. That's true. With the, but he, he, he just, uh, you know, he, he was such an interesting soul, I, I guess the way, <laughs> the, the best way to put it, because very few authors, again, from that time, from that Victorian era, you know, where there was so much hidden and so much repressed, especially towards the, the end of that era. Rarely, when you come across a writer from that era who actually was able to express that kind of, you know, transcendental thinking, uh, I don't want to say Eastern, Western, because I don't believe, you know, the, the idea of... Absolutely. Uh, because it comes from any, from, from anywhere. It's but, universal, uh, yeah. It's universal. but uh, And even in books that are very, you know, uh, realistic, very gritty, like A Dark Forest, another book that just blew me away when I read it, because it deals with... It's, a, it's one of the best anti-war novels I've ever read in terms of how beautiful the book is because it makes you which is again a cliche it makes you you know hate war uh in 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 so many ways because of course he was talking about a first-hand experience that he had but again Mm. there's so much beauty in that book there's so much ugliness in that book but there is so much beauty there is this strange you know kind of existential love story happening in that book and the way that book ends you know he was a sentimentalist and i'm not a sentimentalist at all <laughs> but that ending just you know it it, it it hurt me so much the ending of that book because it was just the, the the final few lines the way he dealt with how it all ties up to this kind of you know relationship between the characters and the love story you know with the, with the, with the trenchard character not being able to have his you know this ideal that he wants to have and he doesn't be it doesn't he, he can't really i don't want to ruin the book but <laughs> this idea of trying to grasp something that you can't within all this you know uh bloodshed and an ugliness and idealism of the russian uh, you know revolution and so yeah. he's just he just wrote about so many things and again there is the strand of sadness running alongside this search for beauty and something bigger that runs through it's like a through line in, in his best work which again i think it's it's uh, it's 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 very unfair that a lot of people don't know about uh, his work or the best of his work because the best of his work i think can you know can 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 stand along uh <laughs> or it's even better than a lot of of the books that you know when you go to university courses now because now universities are such strange places i have to tell you because <laughs> i work a lot with with universities and uh or i used to work a lot with universities not not so much now but yeah. the, the 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 realm of academia now what's considered you know yeah i don't know highbrow f- f- literature <laughs> And there's so much revisionism now. There's so much political correctness, maybe is the way to yeah. put it, that there are a lot of books that are considered great and they are considered great just because maybe their voice or the style is too loud. Maybe 
their ideas are vogueish a little bit. Yeah. But there are books like the books, some of the books of you, uh, Walpole, that just transcend time and place, and they deserve better, I think. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, I think he was an optimist. Uh, I mean, he did write uh, a war pamphlet, in fact, because he was hired to to write uh, propaganda for, for for the British government, obviously. Um, and uh, he wrote a, a, pamph- a war pamphlet um, called uh, The Letter of an Optimist um, about really looking at, uh, you know, what, what people could look forward to once the war was over and trying to draw on some uh, of the better side of it. And I think, yeah, I, I think he was ever an optimist, but he was a lonely optimist because of the way his life was shaped. And maybe he saw himself as somebody who could take maybe a step back and have a look at an overview of, of what the world was like, what people were like, um, and as I said, the human condition. And he could kind of uh, commentate on that uh, in a way. Um, I do think there was an, the, uh, a lot of optimism in his work, as you, as you, as you kind of alluded to there. Um, but the challenge is, is that when you get to that stage, maybe not a lot of people understood him. And it's a very lonely kind of existence. I think there wasn't a lot of people that kind of understood Hugh Walpole while he was alive and while he while his, his work was popular, which makes it even more amazing that, you know, he was so prolific and that publishers really uh kind of backed him um so you know all of those stories it's the it's one of the most you know it's one of the basic plots it was a rag to riches stories but it was a hero's journey too i think he was making a lot of commentary about you know the social aspects of his time too and kind of if people wanted entertainment he had a little bit of it in there and he tried to kind of shoehorn some of that into his more popular entertainment as well um but yeah, I think all of that wrapped up led led him to a, a to a to a lonely life and and amazingly still an optimistic life as well, and that that definitely comes through in his work. But there's also this contradiction, uh, you know, because you mentioned that he amassed this huge fortune, which would only yeah. come from him being a best-selling author. So, you know, considering that he was such a complex character and such a prolific writer across so many genres, what do you think made his work so appealing to basically the masses at the time, although he was going against some of the prevailing ideas at the time? Yeah, so he, he his overarching thing is that he really wanted to be a writer. He, he was focused on that and he, he overcame so many obstacles. He had a he got a job early on in his career at a publisher kind of reviewing manuscripts and he would see which ones would get passed through and which ones wouldn't. So he, he kind of studied how he could get things published. And I think the only way he knew that he was ever going to kind of get himself on a stable footing um, so that he could write what he really wanted, which was his lifelong um, uh, uh, historical novel series, the, the, the Harry's Chronicles. Um, he knew that he had to basically give the people what he, they wanted to get himself to a position where he could write what he wanted. Um, so I think he studied that. And I think there was kind of a canniness to what he did, that he studied people how to get where he wanted to go uh, and gave them what he wanted so he could get what he wanted. And, and, I, and I think 
I don't, I think he had his head screwed on kind of financially as well, probably through necessity. Um, but I, I think that played a part that he would write to what people wanted to read, especially in the early days. And maybe that's why sometimes, because he wasn't writing necessarily from his heart, even though he was writing from experience, perhaps, um, he wouldn't always get it spot on in terms of the genres that he was writing in. And that maybe some of might kind of explain some of the clumsiness of his early work. Um, but once he'd kind of established himself, he could then, you know, step out a little and then try to get his publishers to publish the work based on the fact that he'd already been successful. So I think he had slightly commercial mind as well, which was fascinating considering he came from, you know, the clergy, which is far from commercial. Um, so, yeah, I think he was savvy underneath. Uh, the only part of the commercialism that I would say he didn't kind of uh, master was obviously paying his taxes. He he left a massive amount of unpaid taxes, which um, really accounted for a lot of his fortune. He was always at auctions buying paintings. I think once he'd tasted some of the high life, you know, he, he wanted more. He would store paintings in his London flat. He would store paintings in his vast 30,000 book collection, a uh, collection of 30,000 books up at Brackenburn in, in the Lake District. Um, and even uh, the people that looked after him, uh, his housekeepers, who had a, he hired another house for, one of their spare rooms was even uh, uh, stacked full of paintings as well. So he, once he got there, he enjoyed the life that he had because I suppose he felt he deserved it. But I don't underestimate the fact that he had a commercial head on his shoulders as well, um, which, uh, which, which, which kind of led to his prolific work as well. Um, and if, if he hadn't have kind of gone through that, um, gone through that process, we'd have never got the great uh, historical novels that he had at the end of his career. So, um, yeah, I think he knew what he was doing in terms of his own career. <laughs> uh, I just want to ask you, for someone who, who's never read uh, Hugh Walpole before, what do you think is the best book to, or the best books to introduce them to his work? Oh, that's really hard, isn't it? Because as you say, he has um, such a wide range. Um, if you, I mean, I, I think his later historical works kind of uh, followed on from Sir Walter Scott, who's also kind of, you know, un, under under promoted these days as well. So something like Rogue Herries is his, is his massive novels. I would say don't start there <laughs> because this is a, it's a big kind of, I mean, it, it's the forerunner of the modern soap opera. Um, but I think something, if you are, if you are a fan of like some Gothic horror, then something like uh, um, the man with red hair is a page turner. Uh, certainly Mr. Perrin and Mr. Trail is, is, is a page turner. Uh, I would kind of go for his, his, his mid career and later books um, and then see if you, you know, if you're a fan of those, maybe have a look through some of his earlier works. But I think he really took off his popularity and his accessibility in his mid-career. So um, one of my favourite books is, is, is The Man with Red Hair. I think it's absolutely fascinating. I, I read it in one sitting and it's a real page turner. So um, that probably would be my recommendation for, for, for starting with Hugh Walpole. It, it's a gothic horror. Uh, and you won't be able to put it down um, if that's if that's your thing. So that's that's where I'd recommend to start. <laughs> so what's next for you and uh, and the Hugh Walpole uh, website? Uh, 
<laughs> well, that's interesting you ask that because obviously I want to obviously keep taking things out of the archives that I've collected. Um, I'm constantly researching because there's, there's always something new to research because it has been so much undiscovered. Um, my goal, um, I live in London at the moment, but uh, it's funny because Hugh Walpole has led me to the Lake District and, and every time I visit there, uh, I feel some kind of connection to that area as well. I would have never discovered that area of Britain uh, had I not discovered Hugh Walpole. I, I'm actually planning to move to the Lake District um, and when I do so, hopefully I can perhaps uh, revitalise this online archive into something physical. There is a part of the Keswick Museum in, in, in Cumbria uh, that's devoted to Hugh Walpole. Um, but my long-term goal is to perhaps start up some kind of um, attraction or uh, destination where uh, the locals from Cumbria can gather and, and find out more about that. So certainly I want to build on the website uh, and see if I can do more. I'm also thinking of writing a book uh, which explores Hugh Walpole's life in a different way to the Rupert Hart Davis's uh, uh, biography because, uh, because there's a lot that he couldn't talk about. And I think there was aspects that even he didn't understand uh, and kind of pieced together, you know, Hugh Walpole's life. So there's potentially a book coming out as well uh, that I'm, I'm trying to put together from the blog as well. So uh, lots more to do um, to celebrate, you know, his the, this prolific author's life. So watch this space. <laughs> yeah, that that sounds uh, exciting. And I check your website, uh, you know, as many times as I can because it's just it's it's the place for someone who uh, for anyone who loves uh, good books uh, who loves good literature and of course if if uh, if someone if anyone uh, if any of the listeners actually and I, and I assume that people listening to to this podcast at least some of them are are fans of you old Paul's work so your website youallpool.com an amazing place if you are a fan of of the author and uh, Simon, thank you so, so much, firstly, for your website and secondly, for coming on the show, because uh, I've been a fan of, of Walpole's work ever since reading, I guess it was Mr. Perrin and Mr. Trail, and uh, it has taken me actually uh, more than a year to, to, uh, to, to track down someone who is as well versed as you in, uh, in in literature and in the literature of you Walpole to actually talk about his work, uh, because uh, I think he's one of the most uh, underrated and underappreciated uh, British authors, you know, uh, of all time. And uh, I thank you for for uh, for your dedication to to in, you know reintroducing his work to. To new generations and i truly thank you for uh, coming on the show hey thank you ahmed and uh, thank you for helping me spread the word about um about his work as well because without people like you um you know we'd be all talking into a vacuum and uh, that's the power of podcasting so more power to uh, uh, your podcast as well the dark fantastic podcast it's brilliant work so well done ahmed Good morning, Miss Lester. How fortunate. I was just passing, going for my constitutional. Maybe we're going to have some rain. 
Oh, I hope not. It's a junior's match today, isn't it? Is it? Oh. Yes, 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 I believe it is. I hope he keeps fine. If only for Mr. Trail's sake. He's so keen, isn't he? Trail? Young, of course. Fundamentally, quite all right, I'm sure. Given time and experience, no doubt he should make a good schoolmaster. At the moment, just a little inclined to be cocksure. Trifle too pleased with himself, perhaps. Afraid I disagree with you. I found him quite the reverse. If anything, a little too diffident. I think he's extremely modest, considering all he's been through. No doubt, but army experience is not necessarily a good qualification for being a schoolmaster. Really? Miss Lester. Yes, Mr. Perry. I want... That is, I'd be most sincerely grateful if... One day... Yes? So glad you'd come for a walk with me. I'd like to end this episode with a clip from a radio drama adaptation of The Old Ladies, one of Hugh Walpole's strangest and darkest novels. This radio drama first aired on BBC Radio 4 in 1968. Thanks for listening, and please join me again for another episode of the Dark Fantastic Podcast. Quite a number of years ago, there was an old rickety building on the rock above Polchester in an old grass-grown square. And in this house, at one time or another, lived three old ladies, Mrs. Lucy Amherst, Miss May Berenger, and Mrs. Agatha Payne. It was a windy, creaky, rain-bitten place. Mrs. Amherst's room was on the ground floor, and she stayed indoors a good deal. Miss Berenger was new to the house. She had come to her room on the first floor only the day before. On the first floor, too, was Mrs. Payne's room. It was a large room, curiously jumbled with odds and ends. And the first things you'd notice were a black-haired doll called Miranda in a green dress and two packs of cards scattered on the shabby red tablecloth. There was a cuckoo clock and a large black rocking chair and in it, Mrs. Payne, a large, stout, shapeless woman with deep black hair and highly coloured cheeks. Her hair was tumbled carelessly about her head and stuck into it askew was a cheap black comb studded with glass diamonds. As the cathedral clock struck, Miss Berenger went nervously downstairs and across the hall, hesitated, and then knocked on Mrs. Amherst's door. You've been listening to The Dark Fantastic Podcast. Ahmed Khalifa is a filmmaker and novelist. He is the writer-director of several short films and a feature, released on Netflix, and the author of a number of novels and short stories, including Beware the Stranger, available on Amazon.